Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Guys, I am so excited about this particular episode. I've invited my friend... Steve Ovens to join me. We're doing a network segment. This is the hour to get your network questions answered. Over the past few weeks, Steve Ovens has been going through the email feedback that comes in. We've organized that into different categories to try to get a better understanding as to what the questions that you have out there in the audience are. That's the reason we launched the show in the first place was to help connect people with the answers. And what we got overwhelmingly was networking. We want to understand more about networking. So Steve and I are going to take you through that uh, over the course of the hour. If you have questions, give us a call, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. You can also join us in our interactive Jitsi room. You can go to geeklab.ninja and join the Element Chat there. Join the Jitsi Widget, widget, as it were. Steve Ovens, my friend, welcome into the program. Thanks, Noah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I I appreciate you taking the time to be here. So uh, we'll get started with our feedback segment. We're going to do it a little bit differently this hour. We're instead of uh, instead of going into the feedback and and directly addressing it, we're going to set all the questions up, and so you understand what the questions are out there. If it's your question, well. Then you know what you asked. And then as we go on and, and, and progress through our network segment, then we'll roll back and see if we can learn some of the knowledge that we've that we've acquired and some of the troubleshooting skills that we now have to go back and solve some of those questions. So our first email from Cameron, Grand Rapids, Michigan, writes in and says, Hello, I've been dabbling and learning Linux and networking related subjects for the last three years. I first set up a Nextcloud instance on my Raspberry Pi. But now I run it on an Intel Nook alongside my MB Media Player. I'd like to start fresh and run Nextcloud with Jellyfin and Mumble, all remotely accessible by my friends and family to share. But I believe I need a reverse proxy. Is this correct? I've also considered setting up all three of these services in containers to make it easier to set up again if, for example, I ever need to upgrade my machine or my hardware. Thanks, Cameron. So stick around, Cameron. We'll get to your question here as the show rolls on. Our second email comes in from James. James says, hi, Noah. I was wondering if you've heard of the kernel 5.4.067 causing networking issues. And uh, Steve, I don't know. Have you heard of any specific networking issues of a particular kernel uh, kernel version? It seems to me that if that were a thing, it would be flagged and corrected probably pretty quickly. I haven't heard of anything like that. And uh, so I run Arch at home and we have, there's a package on Arch called Informit that kind of populates the Arch Linux blog to you when you run updates. And normally it has that sort of information. And I haven't seen anything from Informit saying that um, there's anything to be uh, of note there. Yeah, I, I haven't either. And like I say, it would kind of surprise me uh, if there was any major networking issues uh, with the kernel, specifically to a kernel release. Um, certainly it could be, you know, maybe a driver thing or something like that. But if it was a widespread issue, I, I feel like that would get corrected pretty quickly if it even made it out the door. Our third email comes in kind of similar vein. Uh, it comes in and, and says, hi, Noah. 
I'm trying to repurpose a Chromebook with Linux. I have it installed and working, but the problem is that the Wi-Fi does not work with a kernel newer than 3.14. Running the older kernel causes various other problems with the hardware that are solved by moving to the newer 5.x kernel. I've identified the Wi-Fi Bluetooth card as being a BCM4354. Do you know of any way to extract the drivers from the old kernel? For ease of use, I have two different hard drives with the 3.14 installation and one with a fresh install of the 5.x. I have found that the that a file in slash user slash lib slash firmware slash brcm slash bcm 4354 underscore 003.001, et cetera, et cetera, on the old install, and I've copied that to the exact same location on the new install, but that didn't seem to have any effect. I also have references to the kernel config needing the the config bt hci uart underscore bcm equals y set, which is. I know I could get a USB dongle, but ideally I would like to get this working without one. How would I go about making the BCM4354 work under Arch and Linux ARM? Also, if you have any good guides in the two-in-ones and disabling the keypad trackpad and rotating the screen when in tablet mode, that would also be great. Thanks. So, uh, Steve, I, let's start with this. When you want to copy a driver, what are the what are the required steps in order for the operating system to be for the kernel, I guess, to be aware that that driver is on the system and without giving the answer away, um, well, load the driver. That's that's really what we're trying to do, right? What are the steps necessary for that? So normally, what happens is, especially with the Broadcom stuff, there is an overarching um, package that the name escapes me, but it starts with BCM and it's whatever, it doesn't matter. It exists on every version of Linux and it's it's considered the open source version of the Broadcom driver. And what happens when the system boots, this thing gets loaded if the hardware is detected and then a specific call to say an, uh, an HCD file like key ref references here, uh, then is looked for by that driver. You'll see if you actually scan D messages, you'll see this um, generic open source Broadcom thing that's just enough to start your Broadcom chip will then make a call for a specific driver. And that's normally the process that these things follow. And in our chat room, uh, geeklab.ninja, Conan Kudo specifies that he gives a link um, to RPM Fusion in which there is appear to be a driver for the, for the Broadcom B43 series uh, wireless card. And, of course, the link that he has from RPM Fusion is obviously an RPM, but he says that you could download the RPM, unpack it on an Arch system, and that should also work. So what I'll do is I'll go ahead and throw uh, this link in the show notes uh, for you, which you can find at podcast.asknoahshow.com. And uh, if you want to give if you want to give that a shot and download that, that RPM, at least that would get you the driver that you need. Here's another option I'll throw out there for you. Obviously, the BCM um, is, a, is a Broadcom chip. And... One of the things that I have done numerous times now, now granted, I've never done it in a Chromebook and I don't know what specific model Chromebook you have. So maybe there is some hang up preventing you from doing such a thing. But um, in a lot of traditional laptops, what, I, what I'll do is I'll just take the bottom cover off. I'll pull that that Broadcom card out and I'll just go replace it with some sort of an Intel card. And that's going to that's going to effectively uh, circumvent the problem because then all the Intel cards basically work with the. Uh, with, with the native drivers and you won't have to worry about custom loading a driver. But if you want to get that specific Broadcom card to work, 
um, then I would then I would suggest um, maybe took a, taking a look at that RPM uh, download, and and if that has the, the necessary drivers, you could probably get that to work. But I I would you know it's it's I I wouldn't imagine that just copying a file over is going to work because the kernel has no way of knowing that that's um, What's there? And I wish people would stop directly pinging me in the chat. It's kind of frustrating. Um, again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Ted writes in and says, hi, Noah. First of all, thanks for all that you do. Ever since I started listening to the show, I've been glued to it every single week. Keep up the great work. The question that I have is this. What are your thoughts about using IPv6? Should we all just be using IPv6 instead of IPv4? If our ISP supports both, or should we just be sticking with IPv4 for now? Thanks, Ted. So, um, Steve, is this one of the questions you think would be better suited to wait until after our network discussion, or is this one of those things you want to take a stab at now? I think um, we should cover some of the basics of of the um, of networking before we get into that, because to understand IPv6, you have to have a, a better understanding of what's happening in networking general. Fair enough. Fair enough. Our fifth email comes in from Brandon. Brandon writes in and says, I have a NextCloud setup on my old Raspberry Pi. That is local only. Now, I have heard that it's possible to use WireGuard to be able to access my network from outside, so I could still access my NextCloud instance on the go if needed. However, networking is something confusing to me, and I was wondering if you have a good resource that might help me figure out how I could go about doing such a thing with WireGuard. And so, again, I will probably kick this down the road until um, after our networking segment as well. But I'll tell you this much. Uh, WireGuard being a VPN solution is going to offer you the ability to, to, to do the thing that you want to do. Um, and so even if networking is even if even if networking in general is confusing for you, one of the nice things that one of the things I like about networking is that you can you can bite off a small portion of a problem like getting remote access to your network. And you can focus on just that. And even if you didn't understand the rest of it, chances are uh, you can get, you know, like the VPN part to work. If you know what your IP scheme is, you can probably get the VPN part to work. So that might be something to consider. But we'll dig into that again as the show goes on. Our pick of the week this week is FireJail. Now, FireJail is an interesting open source project. We'll have a link for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. It is an SUID sandbox program that reduces the risk of security breaches by restricting the running environment of untrusted applications using Linux namespaces and Linux compatibilities. Now, this allows a process and all of its descendants to have their own private view of the globally shared kernel resources, such as network stack, process table, mount table, so on and so forth. FireJail then can work in an SE Linux or AppArmor environment and is integrated with Linux control groups. Written in C with virtually no dependencies, the software runs on Linux, virtually any Linux computer with a 3.x kernel or newer. It can sandbox any type of process, service, graphical application, and even user login sessions. The software includes Sandbox Profile for a number of common Linux programs, such as Mozilla Firefox, Chromium, VLC, Transmission, etc. The Sandbox is lightweight. Its overhead is very low, so there's no complicated configuration files to edit, no socket connections to open, no daemons running in the background. All security features are implemented directly in the Linux kernel and are available on any Linux computer. And, of course, FireJail is open source and the code is available on github now steve i i had a i have a little birdie that says that you know something about c groups i'm interested in your thoughts is is this an example of 
where open source and Linux and, and, the, and, the, and the tools and, and knobs and levers that are available under the hood are finally are, are exposed um, to people that maybe don't understand them completely, but are still able to take advantage of some of the security aspects of it? Yeah, what I think is particularly interesting about FireJail is between its use of C groups and namespaces, it basically takes an application and puts it inside of what we now think of as a container um, because containers are made up of primarily namespaces and C groups. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about namespaces, uh, shameless plug here, I've been doing a series for redhat.com about uh, the seven most used namespaces, and I kind of walk through why this is important. So I talk about the capabilities that you mentioned and how namespaces are actually providing segregation. So I think it's really a very interesting thing to see that FireJail has taken these underlying kernel mechanisms and made it user approachable. So like you said, that's something that you don't often see in, in let's say, more closed environments. Sure. Yeah. And so we will have a link to, to, to your article at redhat.com. Um, system admins, the seven most used Linux namespaces, a brief overview of what the seven most used Linux namespaces are. Um, and you, you did that at the beginning of this year. So we'll have a link to that as well. You can find that in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Um, oops, I clicked on the wrong thing here. Our gadget of the week this week. Now this is, this is kind of cool. So I have been on the hunt for external USB enclosures. Um, part of it is we're going around to a lot of our clients and making sure that they're either on our managed backup services. And if they're not on our managed backup services, then we're saying, Hey, at least take a hard drive and put the most important things on here and make sure to make copies of them. And it's on you to do however you want, but here's what we would do if you do nothing else at least have one other copy of your data so that we have something to go back to um and so as we did that we started looking for hard drive enclosures what we were going to go with what was going to work really well and we tried a number of different brands and they all have positives and negatives or pros and cons of all of them um in a perfect world i would find a type c enclosure that would take a 2.5 or a 3.5 inch drive and if it's a 2.5-inch drive, could power off of the Type-C cable itself. And if it was a 3.5-inch drive, then have external power. Uh, also, I'm not really a fan of of toolless designs. I really like screws that go in there and, and screw the, the, the enclosure shut because then it really feels like an actual uh, external hard drive. Now, I, I didn't get all of those, but uh, there is a company called Orico. And Orico makes a number of different external hard drive enclosures. The one that I have wound up with is the Orico tool-free USB 3.0 SATA enclosure. Now it's 29 bucks. It's available on Amazon, Newegg, Tiger Direct, CDW, all the places. And what I like about it is even though I'd, I'd be more of a fan of actual screws holding things together and in place and where a customer or a person couldn't take it apart, I have to admit it is tremendously flexible and, and convenient when you go into a place and they say, here's the hard drive we want to use, or here's the thing we want to back up to, or here's the thing that we have been using to back up, and now we're going to go through whatever thing you're recommending. Okay, great. We turn it over. We slide the back off. We shove the hard drive in. You slide the back back on, and boom, Bob's your uncle. Now you have a USB hard drive enclosure that you just made uh, with the hard drive. The other thing I like about it being toolless is in the event of an emergency where you have to recover data or you need to get access to that drive, um, 
it's very simple to take it out of the enclosure and run if you need to, right? Uh, and th- that that's twice as true if you if the if the enclosure dies. Oftentimes, one of the things that I I really object to modern hard drive manufacturers doing is they solder the USB controller onto the hard disk. And so if you go purchase a pick your name hard uh, external hard drive and you take a, a flathead screwdriver and crack the little plastic case open. 10, 15 years ago, you would have seen an actual hard drive connected to uh, a little SATA connector at the front, and that's what ran out the front with the USB cable. These days, you crack open that little uh, plastic piece, and the the hard drive is physically attached to a controller that has a, a USB cable on it. Now, I've had both controllers die and hard drives die, but let me tell you, it's awfully frustrating when you have a hard drive that died and it's not really the hard drive that's died. It's actually just the stupid little controller on the front of it that's dead. And then you get to fight the battle of you send it into data recovery sp- places, which have clean rooms that can extract data off the disks themselves if you don't know which part of the hard drive is dead. And they call you back and say, well, we have to you know, get this little header thing or solder this thing on or whatever it is, whatever the process is on that particular model, whatever they have to do. It can be a very frustrating experience when you find out that, oh, it was the controller that died, not the hard drive. So if I hadn't had the little branded one, if I would have just purchased my hard drive in the enclosure separately, when the controller died, I could have just taken the hard drive out, plugged it into my computer and pulled all the data off of it. And I would have been no worse for the wear. Um, in this event with the Oracle tool free USB 3.0 SATA drive, same story, right? I order another $29 enclosure, take the back off, pull the drive out, put it back in a new enclosure, and we're back up and running. And so the Oracle tool free USB 3.0 SATA drive, I've purchased, um, both the, uh, the USB 3.0 SATA one, which is the 3.5 inch version, and I purchased the 2.5 inch one to try uh, to try it out. The 3.0, I'm, I'm more of a fan of because it uses a regular type B connector at the back. The, the, the little one is not only micro, but it's the 3.0 micro. And so not really a fan. I'll just, I'll continue to be in, on hunting for a 2.5 one until we find one that, uh, that, that can power all the things and, and match all of the things. Since really the inception of this show, we have always... Oh, wow, that's focus. that's exciting. It plays the thing and then tries to... Uh, then I start talking. That's not cool. 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. So as explained, we are doing a live network segment. If you have questions about your network, if you have questions about getting started in networking, now is your opportunity to ask. Give us a call at 855-450-NO. It's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at Show. Dot com. We'll start with Scooter from Grand Forks. Hey, Scooter, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, it's good to talk to you again. Uh, I guess my question doesn't have to do with networking. I apologize. No worries. And uh, over the, the when I was waiting, I, I thought of another question. So if we have time, hopefully we can get to that. But uh, I come from a, a blended family, Noah. Uh, my wife has the, the Apple iOS phone, and I got an Android. Mm-hmm. We have a toddler son, so we take a ton of pictures. And we want to exchange pictures between the two of us. Uh, the wife's answer to this is just send the picture to me in a text, uh, but that, you know, deteriorates the picture and, and makes it small and, and whatnot or compresses it and everything. So what, I'm wondering what the most efficient way, the best way to exchange photos between the two different systems would be. Mm, that's a great question. Steve, you have any thoughts? So my wife and I are in this exact boat. Um, She's got an iPhone and I have the Android stuff. Um, We solve this kind of in a roundabout way where we both have 
the NextCloud agent running on our phones and it automatically shifts those things off to NextCloud. So that's how we do it. We also use it as an automatic backup so that she doesn't burn through her, whatever they call it, I, I don't know, iStorage or whatever the heck Apple calls their stuff um, limit on just photos. I'll give you a so uh, so the you could go that route you could go the next cloud route probably the best route from the standpoint of no, let me ask you this Steve does the next cloud agent automatically watch a folder and then back the pictures up or does she have to manually manually decide like I'm gonna push these up to to next cloud no it's automatic or else she wouldn't do it so I'll give you a slightly inferior option then the other option that you might have is look at something like PyWego. PyWego is designed for exactly what you're talking about. It's a third party completely open source uh photo sharing application in where you can upload photo albums and and share them with groups of family or specific people um and of course they have a client for both iOS and Android. So that would solve your problem. The thing I don't like about it and where Steve's solution is is considerably better is that this requires you to choose what photos or what albums you're going to upload to PyWego. Whereas if the next cloud agent runs it just set it and forget it, that's the way to go. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. You said you had a second question? Uh, yeah. So uh, way back in the day, uh, in one of your earlier shows, you had mentioned uh, a little device called the Multipass. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was a really cool device, and so I bought one. Uh, I'm not an IT professional. I didn't uh, have a real specific need. I just thought it was a cool device to keep my passwords in. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, I used it uh, like crazy there for the first few months, and then uh for my, you know, day-to-day usage, I thought NPass was a, a, a better workflow for me, so I, I used that, and I kind of put the multipass on a shelf. Well, things changed, and I, I found a new use for it, so I dusted it off, brought it out, and I went to download the multipass client so I could upload all my passwords, mm-hmm. and I can't find a, I can't find that app anymore. Uh, if I go to the, the GitHub repository where the multi-pass is stored or the, the apps are stored. Um, it's telling me that I got to build it or I got to build the app from uh, QT creator or something like that. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what that is. And so I was wondering if you or anybody, any of your listeners knew where I could get, you know, a pre-built app that I could just download and, and use. Yeah, totally. I'm, I guess I'm kind of surprised that they don't have, Oh, they do. Okay. So on their GitHub page, um, if you, if you, if you scroll down, you'll, uh, under downloads, you'll see it says packages are built and available here. And then they link to a separate part of the, of the GitHub page. Actually, when you click on that, it doesn't actually have the, the binaries here. Yeah, absolutely. I can look into that for you. I can, I'll, I'll look into that for you and I will find, um, packages are built and available here, but then you click on it and it doesn't have packages to install. It just has a source code. So yeah, I will definitely look into that for you. Um, here's, here's another, another cheap or a, a, a cheating way to get there might be, um, I see that it's available as a Chrome store app too, which wouldn't be my first choice, but it might be a way to, if you wanted to just, if you're just trying to get your data off of there, um, might be a quick and dirty way to, to get the thing to talk. And at least you get all your data off of there. Um, but yeah, I, I would I would imagine that they have pre-built binaries somewhere. Yeah, right. Okay. So I'll keep an eye out for those, and obviously, as as usually happens on the show, should anybody else reach at, or anybody else know where where to find those binaries, then email in at live at asknoahshow.com. We'll get that answer back to Scooter. And thanks for the call. Tony calls from Toronto. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. 
Hi there. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, my question is, how do you, I know uh, previously on the shows, uh, you said that you back up all your files with rsync script. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for something, um, is that how you do it, like with all your corporate customers too, or is that just something you do for personal stuff, or with your corporate stuff, is it a little more uh, like like a backup system? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, it, it entirely depends on, on the client's needs, right? So there's a lot of places that they have one free NAS server, uh, oftentimes that we talk them into and say, hey, put your data here, and then they do it. Um, for those kinds of things, we can use something like ZFS Send. Um, if it, if it, they have like a Synology or something like that, oftentimes what we'll do is just have a little RSync script, and yeah, we will use that in production for clients. If it's a larger client or it's a larger set of clients, so like, for example, they have multi-offices or they need they need high availability because they, they in-house host their, uh, you know, software, whatever it is, and it can't go down. It, ha it has to be up. If it's something like that, then we're going with something like Bacula, which is a, which is a, which is a backup system. It's a software specifically designed um, to deal with enterprise grade, high redundancy, all that stuff. And, and so when, when you get in there and say, hey, we've got multiple servers and they all have to be backed up and then we have to be able to restore and we want to be able to restore to different points and all of those things. Um, yeah, Bacula really helps out there. I, I, I actually, I should have should jumped on Steve there. Steve, what are you using for backup these days? So, I guess, are you talking personally or professionally? Yeah, either. Uh, so, I I was thinking about some of my clients. A lot of my clients actually do just do rsync to a centralized location. So, there's two different scenarios. One where they have an NFS mount to you know their NAS, and then that syncs off to somewhere else. Or um, they are synced to a central location, and then they have whatever backup utility the corporation uses pointed at that one. So it's kind of a blend of both of them. Um, for myself, uh, I have a pretty, let's say, overkill backup strategy just because I'm kind of paranoid. Uh, it's rsync is definitely at the crux, but the short version is I have two cold hard drives, I have a NAS, and then I have two. Oh, he dropped there for a second. He'll be back. Oh, there he is. Hey, welcome back. Sorry about that. Sorry about that, Steve. Welcome back. You were saying that you have, uh, You last thing we heard was that you had a NAS. Anyways, yeah, I have facilitator, and then I have NextCloud backing up stuff, and then I have Spider Oak, and then... Uh, a third-party provider that also is privacy-focused out in the cloud. So I kind of... Did we lose Steve? Steve, you back? Ah, it's just the episode of, uh, it's just the episode of Comedy of Errors this week. Anyway, um, so yeah, Tony, um, the, the couple different options uh, for you there. Um, does that give you something to go off of? It, it definitely does. And I guess the second part of that, um, is how, how do you monitor those? Like, what do you use to monitor those backups? Uh, are you using the same software that you're using to monitor your network? Um, yeah, that's yeah. that's that's a great question too. So for 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 a general purpose monitoring software, we we typically go with something like Libra NMS. 
um, for doing backups specifically because data integrity is so critical, um, not only to clients, but to, to, to our bottom line. Oftentimes, in addition to automated software, we'll, go, we'll actually go back in there and once a month we do something called a site visit where we go out and just kind of check in with the client, make sure that they're happy and all of those kinds of things. And part of the checklist for any site visit is verify the backups are working. Okay. Um, okay, that sounds good. No, thank you very much. Okay, yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAA, that's 1-855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. So we're going to get started with our network segment. And again, Steve, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here, helping us out with this Um Steve has uh, has been a friend to the show and and has a tremendous amount of experience in networking and, and so I I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Yeah, it's always good to chat with you. One of the uh, things that I've noticed over the months of of doing the email with you is we have recurring themes, especially around networking. It seems to be some of the most common questions that we get. Sometimes we answer them out of band, and sometimes you address them right on the radio. But uh, I thought it would be a good chance to get together. I have some theoretical and some practical knowledge and you do this stuff kind of day in and day out. And I thought it'd be good to just kind of have a chat about it. Absolutely. So without further ado, um, I'm going to assume that there's a lot of people out there that they're conceptually aware that some of this networking stuff exists in their home. We're just going to kind of start at the beginning. And so if I was going to start at the beginning, Steve, would it be an accurate representation or would it be an accurate summation to say that the concepts that you can learn inside of your house are the same concepts that apply on the wide open Internet? We're just managing them at a smaller scale. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the principles of networking apply no matter what kind of scale that you're working at. Of course, notwithstanding some of the protocols that that make a huge network work, but Generally speaking, all of the principles that you can apply to your home network will apply to an enterprise corporation. I, if you sit down at your computer, one of the first things that you're going to have to get comfortable with is IP address spacing and understanding what IP addresses are and how to manage them and how to allocate them and how to find them. So I guess let's start with this, Steve. What is an IP address and why is that information useful or necessary? So I guess you can kind of think of an IP address as something similar to a phone number. It's a way that, generally speaking, one computer will use to contact another computer, just like you dial a phone number to call somebody specific. An IP address is often used in the same fashion for computers. Let's say for the sake of argument that I'm running the latest version of Fedora with GNOME. And I want to know what the IP address of my local computer is. What is the what is the best way for somebody to, to ascertain that information? So there's a couple of ways you can go about it. Um, the easiest way is on the command line and clicking, um, typing IP space address, and that will dump your configuration. If you want to do this via the, the GUI, in the top right-hand corner, there's a power button and some other icons. If you click on that, that you should see uh, either a wired or wireless connection inside of the menu that drops down. Uh, if you click on one of those, there is something, for example, on my computer that I'm sitting at, it's wired. So if I click on the wired connection, it drops down and then there says wired settings. And if you click on that, what will happen is it'll pop up into the network settings section 
and then you click on your in there's a little cog and if you click on the cog beside your if so for example mine says connected at a at thousand megabits if i click on the cog beside that up pops up the wired dialogue that gives you your ip address your mac address and so on we'll talk a little bit more about why there's a difference between a private local uh, network address and and your public address that's available on the internet. But for the time being, it, do you have any quick ways for somebody to go determine what their public IP address is? Honestly, normally I use uh, what is my IP, and there's a website called whatismyip.com. But both DuckDuckGo and Google, and I'm sure Bing and all the rest of them, if you just type in what is my IP, will return your public IP for you. Oh, that's pretty handy. And so that's a great way for people maybe to get uh, to get access to their home network when they're outside uh, of their home. And we'll talk a little bit more about how you can do that uh, with port forwarding, so on and so forth. Um, so I know what my public IP address is. Now I know what the IP address is of my laptop. Uh, maybe I've looked in, inside of my inside of the configuration or inside of the output in the terminal, and I've noticed that there's another address called the default gateway. What is a default gateway, and and why is that information necessary for us to be able to send information to the internet? Yeah. So just like back in the day when you had a when you dialed a telephone, it went to a switchboard, and then someone would manually make a connection for you from one number to another. A default gateway is the address of your router. So just like in the old days where you had a switchboard that would connect telephones to each other based on where they were going, your computer needs something to connect it to another endpoint. It doesn't know all of the addresses that exist on, on the internet. So what it does is everything has a default gateway, which means if I don't know the address for where I'm going, I'm just gonna send it to the gateway and let the gateway figure it out. And in this case, the gateway is usually your router, or in some cases, router modem combo from your ISP, which will then forward that out to the internet to figure out where the traffic needs to go. If I type in that uh, IP address into my web browser, and let's say I'm prompted with a web page, um, I look at the back of the modem and I find out the make and model and I look up and I find the default username and password that came with it. And so I've logged in. I'm staring at this configuration. Um, essentially what some cable modem providers do is they combine a couple of different devices into your cable modem. So instead of just being a cable modem, it's a cable modem. It's also a router. It's also a switch. And it's also an access point. And they combine all of those units into one unit that that just sits and, and, and does all of those things. And so a lot of people, as they want to become more self-reliant and they want to start making decisions on, well, I don't just want the access point that came with that router. I want to be able to purchase my own. And maybe I don't even want that router. I want to be able to choose my own. Maybe I don't want that switch. I want to choose my own. And so as people go to make those decisions, one of the first things that you have to do is place the modem into what's known as bridge mode. So, Steve, what is bridge mode and, and, and why is that a necessary step for us to be able to use other networking gear with our cable modem? So without going into too much technical detail, bridge mode is basically a way where it's passing the traffic through without doing anything to it. And why this is important is because if you need to have traffic coming in from the internet and being handled by another device on the other side of the modem, so something inside your house, 
then you most likely want to have the you want to have your ISP's device in bridge mode so that it doesn't apply any firewall rules and it doesn't try to make any decisions for you. So bridge mode is in its simplest terms give me the raw feed from the internet and I will deal with it. So I've placed my modem into bridge mode and now I've connected maybe a PFSense router. Maybe I've chosen the SG1100. It's only $200. And so I've connected the WAN port of my SG1100 to my cable modem. And I've noticed that instead of getting a local private IP address, like for example, 192.168.1.15, now I've got a public IP address, the same IP address that was showing up when I went to whatismyip.com or useduck.go to identify my public IP I've noticed that that IP address is now showing up in my new router, or maybe it's changed. Maybe I've noticed that my ISP is handing out what we call dynamic addresses, um, and so I have that IP address in my router. Um, before we can go any further on how packets are sent within a network from one machine to another, we have to understand what a MAC address is. Steve, what is a MAC address, and why, why do switches need to understand what MAC addresses are to make decisions on where to send packets? So a MAC address is essentially a, a unique, or at least it's supposed to be unique, hardware identification. And, you know, without getting into a very deep level of networking, essentially what happens is whenever you send any kind of communication out from your computer, the MAC address is put as part of every piece of communication. And the reason that is is so that things on your local LAN can find their way back to the correct place. The reason why a MAC address is really important for communication, generally speaking, inside of switches, they use MAC addresses to determine where to send packets. They don't actually use the IP address. So what happens is if you've got a switch and two computers connected to it, the switch records the MAC address of each computer and which port that MAC address is assigned to. So when the switch comes in and your packet says, I want to go to this computer, computer B, the switch does a lookup on its table and says, okay, that MAC address is on port three, send this traffic out port three. And so that's why MAC addresses are important because they are what actually uniquely identify your computer. So when I send a when I send a um, I send a network packet from my machine to somebody else's machine, it, it doesn't come out all of the switch ports. It's only coming out the switch port of the person who intended is intended to receive that packet, and that's handled by MAC addresses. Is that true of all traffic? Uh, I would say no. It's not true of all traffic, but but that's how TCP traffic works, which is the majority of the traffic that's going to be sent over your local LAN. As we get into uh, IP addresses, the second number that uh, that comes up, now that we've kind of understand what an IP address is, the default gateway, is that one in the middle, the subnet mask. And a lot of people uh, have come to learn that if on a local network, a lot of times if you just type 255.255.255.0, that, that seems to work. Um, but what is that subnet mask actually doing and, and why is that an important part of our network configuration? Yeah, so this gets into a lot of subnet math, math where, you know, back in school when I, when I went through to do my Cisco networking stuff, we had entire classes about how to sit down and do the math and, and figure all of this stuff out. In essence, 
what those numbers mean is how many computers are in a given IP range. So you can have 254 computers in a what's called a 24-bit subnet mask. That is the standard. So if you've got a 192.168 number, chances are they have decided that that's going to be what's called a class C network. A class C network has 254 uh, usable addresses. I know that this, this, I feel people's eyes glazing over whenever you talk about this, but you can just think of this as, um, if you think of a giant room, it's how many computers can I fit in a giant room before I need another room? So if, if subnets are exactly like rooms, you can hear everybody speaking in the same room, but you can't necessarily hear the people in the next room unless you have something to facilitate that communication. And that's exactly how a subnet works. And the device that facilitates a communication between two networks is a router. So when we send information, if we want to communicate from one network to another network, we place a router in between. The router is aware of both of those networks and makes routing decisions. And then, of course, we can get much more complicated and much deeper ways to make those decisions and priorities of those decisions and so on and so forth. But that's the basic concept of how everything is, is kind of laid out. I think it's also interesting to point out that on the other end of your cable modem is what's known as a CMTS, or cable modem termination system. And that's a really fancy way of the ISP getting one of their switch ports into your home. And so provided that your modem is in a bridge mode, uh, effectively, you can treat the other end of your cable modem kind of like a switch port from the ISP. Uh, and then from there, you can kind of start to conceptualize how you have a smaller network and that's plugged into uh, a, a one interface of your router. And then that goes to a bigger network and they have switches and then eventually routers that go to even bigger networks and so on and so forth. Um, when we start to get too big and we're responsible for it, let's say, for example, I have a building and I have my business in my building. And so I set up a network for it. And now all of a sudden, somebody else wants to rent space in my building. And so I have to have two networks that exist inside of my building. Now, there might be smaller reasons that you'd want to do something like that. Maybe you want a separate network for all of the people that come over to your house to have a, a separate guest network. Steve, what would, be a, what would be a good networking tool that we could use to accomplish something like that? Well, the most basic, as we talked about, is, is a subnet itself. But the subnet doesn't provide any kind of additional security around it. It it prevents people from, you know, yelling across the room into a different room as long as no one's trying to do anything bad. If you're setting up a guest network, then usually that's because you want to provide some sort of access to the Internet without a chance of them getting to, let's say, the file server on your local network. If this is your scenario... What you really want to look at if your router and switch support this is VLANs or virtual LANs. And a virtual LAN essentially provides a segregation between your networks that can't be breached unless you actually explicitly allow it. Are there times uh, inside of a home environment or maybe a professional environment where I would explicitly want to allow traffic uh, between two virtual LANs or VLANs? Yeah, of course. So because 
the two networks are completely separated when you have VLANs, there might be specific types of communication you might want to allow. So a good example of this is I have a file server on, my, on one VLAN, but I want to have my Roku be able to access the Samba share. I don't necessarily want to have all of the ports open, like be able to SSH into the box and all of the rest of that. I just want to share files. So it is a valid use case to have them on separate VLANs and have only the Samba ports open so that your Roku can then read the files off of the file server. Wow, that's pretty cool. And that allows for greater security and allows me to really drill down on what's happening on my network. So with our newfound knowledge, Steve, um, maybe we can take uh, a few moments and walk through some some basic troubleshooting steps uh, on how somebody could solve some real-life problems with the information that they've learned. So somebody gets onto a network, whatever network it is, maybe it's their own network, maybe they're setting something up in their home, and they have an IP address, but they can't get onto the internet. Where would that person look? Where should that person start? Well, the first thing that you take a look at is, uh, I get an IP address, can I ping anything else around me? Mm. If I can ping another known IP address, then I would look and see, what is, is my default gateway set correctly? And if it is, so the, remember the default gateway is the router that you have between you and the internet. So you might have a very common one is 192.168.1.1. It's a very common default gateway. If this is correct, there could be any number of, of problems. So you need to determine what is the problem that you're facing. Is it I try to use ping, for example, duckduckgo.com. If I try that command in the terminal, for example, and I don't see it resolving to an IP address and it just errors out, this likely points at a DNS problem. If I do resolve it, but it still doesn't go somewhere, the problem might be somewhere else. And so there's there's a lot of troubleshooting that you could do in order to try and figure out where the problem may lie. Most ISPs by default will hand out their own DNS servers. And so, of course, the downside, to, I should, well, let's start. The upside to that is that you're probably getting very quick answers um, to what domain belongs to what IP address because it's running on their network. And downside is, of course, the ISP has that information. Steve, when you set your network up or when you set networks up for the people, um, what DNS servers do you use? So let's back up just briefly and say, well, what what are we talking about when we're talking about DNS servers? Just, just to make sure that, you know, if we're going back to the basics to begin with, a DNS server, the whole point of that is so that humans don't have to memorize IP addresses. So it's just like that switchboard where it says, I want to call, you know, I want to call Walmart. And the what happens is somebody goes and finds that number and says, here's the number to your computer, and the computer makes the connection. So DNS server is responsible for doing that lookup from a human-readable, potentially human-readable term <laughs> to an IP address. So it's right? kind of like a phone book for the internet. Yeah, exactly. And so what Noah was asking was, you know, what kind of, where do I normally go for the information? What phone books do I use? Right? Because if you think about uh, the New York City phone book is famed for being massive and having to look through it. And if you have a situation where your DNS server is huge or 
you know, you have to stand in line because you have to wait for somebody else to answer because so many people are hitting it, that will return slow responses. And it'll make your internet feel slow. So the root of Noah's question is, which phone books do we do I tend to use? And the answer to that is, I don't generally use the ISP's DNS servers. There's there's a number of what I consider privacy and ethical reasons why I won't. Uh, but generally speaking, I will use a DNS service that claims they're not logging. And I say claims because we can never actually know unless it goes to court and, you know, is found out under oath. So there has to be some trust somewhere. Someone is going to know what you're looking for at some level. So normally, the people that are leaning towards the privacy side of things are probably not your Google or your Cloudfares or whatever that have the budget to have really fast response times. So I'm willing to trade a little bit slower of a response time for privacy or perceived privacy, let's say. And the way that I personally balance that is you can set up something on your home LAN to do DNS caching for you. So once it's been looked up, it stores the answer for a certain period of time. And your system can be configured to go talk to that local cache before it goes out to the internet. And that's how we offset the potential for slower queries on a lesser known service. You mentioned something pretty interesting, Steve. You talked about setting up uh, something on your network, setting up something new. Uh, and now that we understand IP addresses and now that we understand kind of how a subnet works and how we can talk to one thing or the other, um, let's talk about how we can add things to our network. So the first thing we're going to want to do is log into whatever routing platform we're using. So if we're using the cable modem, then we'll just log in there. If we have our own router, we'll log in there. And we're going to look for something called a DHCP server or DHCP table. Sometimes if it's a consumer-grade route, grade router, you'll see it under router routing and networking, or sometimes it'll say basic networking setup or router setup. Um, but you want to look for where it is specifying the IP addresses that it's handing out. And Steve, what do you recommend people set aside for, uh, for a static range, for a set of IP addresses that we're, own, that we're going to manage ourselves and not let the router hand out? Honestly, that depends on what you plan on doing in your environment. Like, so a recent scan of my network found that I have 80 active devices. So I will have a larger static IP pool than maybe other people require. So I would say if, if you're reserving only 20, you're probably good for the vast majority of people. Okay, so I have my 20 IP addresses. So maybe I've reserved, uh, you know, 192.168.1 through 192.168.0.2. Uh, 20. And so my, and obviously my router is using dot one. So I have two through 20 left. Um, so I'm going to set up something like, I, I think you said you use Pi-hole for your DNS caching. Yeah, I use Pi-hole um, for DNS caching as well as ad blocking on my house. So download the Pi-hole uh, image and follow the instructions to, to set that up on a Pi-hole. Uh, and then you'd log into it and we'll give it the IP address of 192.168.0.2. Um, there's a couple things we can do there, right? We can go back to our router or our cable modem 
And inside of the DHCP settings, which is the service that hands out IP addresses, we can tell it to hand out all our DNS server now, 192.168.0.2, or we can manually specify on the machines that we want for them to use that pie hole as the networking address um, because it's a device on our network. Steve, is that kind of how we can go and continue to add devices as we maybe add things like Plex and maybe FreeNAS and other services or servers that we want to run? You can definitely do it that way. Um, I would just make a note about whenever you're dealing with, uh, let's say, production. And I consider my, health, my house production because, you know, I've got a wife and kids and things have to work. If you're starting to do things like Piehole or whatever else, there's always an option for secondary and tertiary DNS queries. And you should always set those because if Piehole goes down, the internet stops working at your house and you're clear about it. If Piehole goes down and you have a secondary or tertiary DNS servers set up, what that means is it hits Piehole, Piehole doesn't answer in the right amount of time, it'll go to the next one in the list until it continues down the list to find somebody who will give them an answer. You know, I'll tell you one other thing where I've seen that come up or where that's been, where, where that comes into play a little bit is if you have a domain controller, for example, uh, oftentimes in a, in a corporate environment, you'll see where the organization will always want to try to do DNS requests through the domain controller, and then they'll hand that off to a secondary DNS or tertiary DNS, um, and that allows them to, to, to right off the bat say, hey, these... IP addresses we want to resolve internally or we want to do something specific with them. And then if we don't know, look to the next server uh, of authority. And so that, that's another way you can go about that. Um, Steve, do we have we built enough of our uh, repertoire at this point that we could go through and start answering some of these questions, you think? Yeah, I think that uh, we might have to pick some of these up at the beginning of next week, depending on time. But let's uh, let's see if we can get through a couple. Sure, sure. So let's go back to Cameron's. He's talking about hosting services and a reverse proxy. In short order, Steve, what is a reverse proxy? Reverse proxy is just something that's set up in order to handle all incoming traffic. And it has a list of services that it knows where to send the traffic to. So Nginx, for example, commonly used web server, open source, the whole nine yards. Very, uh, very common choice to set up something like a reverse Nginx proxy, right? Exactly. Is this something that, that he could use to, to get all these services inside of containers and then make it easy to set up and redeploy as he was looking to do? Yeah, you can definitely use a reverse proxy to do this. I, I personally don't because the, the stuff that he's talking about ha uses different ports. And so I didn't find a need to set up a reverse proxy. Generally, a reverse proxy is better if you have similar types. So you're running Nextcloud and a web server and something else all using the same traffic. If you've got different ports, uh, I usually just pass the ports through to the appropriate host. I agree with that. And here's the other side of that, too. When you do run out of ports, like, and I run into this all the time, you have 15 computers on the inside of your network. You want to RDP to all 15 of them. Um, there is a way, uh, albeit through the registry, that you can go and change the ports, the RDP ports that, that, that the, the machine is listening on. And that's certainly true of most services running today. So even if you have two services that are competing for the same port, you might, before you go through the trouble of setting up a reverse Nginx proxy, you might look to see if it's possible to modify the ports and address it that way. Now, I'm excited to dig into this, Steve. I want to talk about Ted's question about IPv6. 
Tell me a little bit about where you're, where you're at in your professional life with IPv6. How often do you run into it? How often do you have to deal with it? How often do you run into organizations that go, yeah, someday, not now. We're not dealing with that mess now. Steve, how often do you uh, do you run into IPv6 where your where your boss says, "Hey, uh, this is something that we're just not dealing with right now. We'll dig into it some other time." And how often do you run into it where they go, "Yeah, we're all IPv6. We're an IPv6 shop." The only time that I really see IPv6 is in the telco industry where they need tons and tons of IPs. Uh, that's literally in the last six years the only place that I've seen IPv6 being deployed at my clients. So my thought, I, I guess I'll start. So, so to answer Ted's question, your thoughts about using IPv6, should we be using it or should we stick to I, uh, IPv4? I personally am more comfortable with IPv4 because um, we have a system of natting and things like that that are well known. With IPv6, you move into the territory of um, the idea is everything can get an IP because our IP space is so big mm. and that changes the paradigm. And when you've changed, when you make a major shift in the way people have understood things to previously be working, that causes a lot of errors and edge cases that you might not think of when you're trying to deploy something. That's an excellent point. The other side of that is um, there's an inherent security, e even though it wasn't designed from that perspective. There's inherent security in data won't pass through the firewall unless we explicitly tell it what's on the inside because of NAT, whereas IPv6 all on all the time. Um, that doesn't necessarily exist. Now, devices are being built with that in mind, but what I've seen in the industry is it's it's that we're playing this massive game of, yeah, IPv6 is great. You go first. <laughs> Nobody wants to be the first person to jump off that bridge. Uh, our fifth email from Brandon uh, talking about NextCloud on his old Raspberry Pi that's local only. Um, any good resources? Uh, is, is WireGuard a good solution for him to access his home network resources from outside the network? I like WireGuard a lot. Um, I I was using it for a while. I personally fell back to uh, OpenVPN on my PFSense router um, for various other reasons. Most of them are probably abated by now, but a lot of it was related to WireGuard support for iOS and Android and whatever else that I needed to connect into the network at the time that I was evaluating it. So I like it. Um, it makes sense to me. It's a little more hands-on in terms of having to make sure that you get the initial configuration set up properly with which subnets you're using for WireGuard and which subnets can then go into your network to actually ex access what you're trying to get to. Absolutely. And I'll be honest with you, Steve, in my in personal environment, I've almost switched entirely over to WireGuard because it is easier. It's it, I've said it before. If you can generate a pair of SSH keys, you can set up WireGuard. I have a video on exactly how to do that. We'll link that in the show notes. Steve Ovens, thanks so much for joining me this episode. I appreciate having you. We have to get together and do this again. This was so much fun. Absolutely, Noah. Anytime you need me, I'm here. All right. We'll, we'll have Steve back. Again, if you'd like to stay caught up during the week, follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. Me personally, at Colonel Linux. If you have feedback, send it in live at AskNoahShow.com. We'll get to it in a future episode. We record every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. We'll see you next week.